Hey, Jay. So, how did Archangel's family deal with his transformation? I mean, that can't have been easy to explain. Oh, he didn't have to explain anything. They were that understanding? They were that dead. Ugh. What happened? Dazzler happened. Wait. Mutant Disco Queen Allison Blair killed Archangel's parents. No, no, no. His uncle, Bertram Worthington, who also used the codename Dazzler, killed Archangel's parents in a semi-reenactment of Hamlet. Ouch. Of course, later it turned out that Maximus Lobo was involved, too. Maximus? What did he want with the Worthingtons? He wanted to harness their resources for his company to make... Lots of money? A dominant subspecies of werewolf mutants. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 343 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to us being a teensy tiny bit closer to Onslaught. Is this going to be like Xeno's Paradox? God, I hope so. So we just get like halfway closer to Onslaught every time, but because it's always halfway of the remaining distance, we never actually get there yet. Exactly. Okay, well, well, there you go, there you go. Uh, so we'll be doing like episode 700, and we'll be mere micrometers from Onslaught, but still not there. Our analyses just get more and more granular as we progress. <laughs> we describe each individual pencil line that Adam Polina does in a given panel. I mean, the way the X-Line's been expanding over the areas we've been covering, it does kind of feel that way sometimes. It kind of does, yeah. Like, we've been in the 90s for... God, I want to say maybe more than half the podcast at this point, and we're still in, like, 1996. We've been in the 90s for almost as long as the 90s themselves lasted. Eventually, we'll just be doing this in real time. But it's still going to be 1996. Oh, jeez. Again, with that Xeno's Paradox thing? I don't know. I never finished my philosophy minor. Who can say? 1996. Forever. Man. Well, better than 2020, I guess. Maybe? Worse in some ways. Anyway, we are getting so ridiculously far off track before even telling you, gentle listeners, what we're going to be talking about. And what we're going to be talking about is mostly, but not entirely, X-Force. The 90s of 90s teams. I mean, pretty much, yeah. So, let's give a little bit of an X-Force primer, or primer, if you're in a country that pronounces it that way, which we are not. So... It used to be that there was a team called the New Mutants, and the New Mutants were the junior team of the X-Men, kind of the school team. But these days, that's Generation X, and the original New Mutants have grown up into X-Force. X-Force is a significantly less academically oriented, but much more explosion-oriented team. Often, but not always, led by everybody's favorite time-traveling mutant cyborg, Cable. I don't know, Miles. The New Mutants blew up a lot. I, I guess so, but that was, you know, not as much the point of their various missions. Now these days, instead of the absolute outlaw renegade team, X-Force is more of an edgier equivalent to the X-Men. They're even sharing the X-Mansion with the higher seniority team. Which, to be honest, sounds kind of awful. X-Force is, I don't know, violent. Boom Boom blows a lot of things up. It's a big mansion. Yeah, that's true. I guess they can have, like, the sacrificial West Wing or whatever. Also, the mansion gets blown up a lot, so... It's used to it. For me, it was Tuesday, says the mansion. Mansion Bison. 
That's what the M stands for. Anyway, X-Force's membership has changed a lot over the years, but right now they consist of... The aforementioned Cable, a.k.a. Nathan Christopher Summers, the time-displaced, gritty, middle-aged son of Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor. Nina Thurman, Domino, Team Wine Mom, with lock powers. Deputy Leader Teresa Rourke, Siren, daughter of Banshee, with a mutant scream that lets her fly and zap stuff. Like Banshee. Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, currently permanently powered up into a similarly flying and zapping form, but with solar energy instead of sound. Gavidra Seven, who may or may not also be Benjamin Russell, we'll get to that, goes by Shatterstar most of the time. He probably hails from the future of the media-obsessed Mojoverse and definitely jumps around with a pair of swords. That doesn't seem safe. We also have Caliban, a former Morlock who can track other mutants and is as mentally simple as he is large. Which is a lot, and which wasn't the case on either count always. Finally, Tabitha Smith, also known as Boom Boom, also known as Boomer, and most recently known as Meltdown, who can create time bombs made out of energy and has recently gotten significantly more extreme. X-Force has always had a complex relationship with authority, so of course the issues we'll be talking about today involve them infiltrating first a super prison and then a super mental institution. Now, we've mostly given you X-Force background here, but one of the issues we're looking at is technically a continuation of an Uncanny X-Men issue. Right. Uncanny X-Men number 333 included a part where Cyclops was called in to protect Senator Robert Kelly from presidential candidate Graydon Creed, who was trying to assassinate Senator Kelly. That ended with them running off into the woods. This will pick up with, uh, somewhere after that. Which brings us to X-Force number 55, Without a Net. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered, as always by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And Jay, I I kind of love this issue. Yeah, it is not half bad. So, Jeff Loeb and Adam Polina's run is somewhat controversial, especially as I understand the part a little bit later, which I think is just Jeff Loeb, I think Polina's gone, where they're on a big road trip. But right now, what we have is a slightly cartoony, slightly irreverent, very explodey soap opera-y heist. And it works super well for X-Force. There's some weird discord between the line art and the colors here. And I think it's it's as Javins is getting used to sort of more three-dimensional colors, and um it it's 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 something that's visible enough to be kind of distracting to me, but on the whole it's pretty solid. Yeah, I think overall it's it's great. Uh, and the way it opens is also great. Okay, so get this. So Meltdown, which is to say Boom Boom, which is to say Boomer, which is to say Tabitha Smith, is hanging upside down holding a time bomb. And what she's hanging upside down from is a couple of swords stabbed into a wall atop which Shatterstar is sitting. Atop the wall or atop the swords? Uh, atop the swords, atop the swords. I mean, it's Shatterstar after all. And that wall is specifically the side of the freaking S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. You know, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s giant floating aircraft carrier high in the sky. Gonna have to take issue with some of the narration here, because Loeb makes the claim that no one has previously successfully infiltrated the helicarrier. And and that's that's just lies, man. That is that is big ol' lion lies. Okay, so who has infiltrated the helicarrier before? 
Okay, so I got lazy because I knew this had happened, but I couldn't remember issue number, so I actually asked on Twitter. And uh, here's what I've got. Let's see. Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D. number one. Nick Fury does it. In the She-Hulk graphic novel, it happens. Um, it's brought down in a fight uh, specifically between She-Hulk and um, hive mind intelligent cockroaches. Because of course it is. Mm. Um, Viper and Silver Samurai managed to get into it um, in Marvel Team-Up 82 to 85. Let's see... The Impossible Man made it on in X-Men Annual number 7. Wolverine, I, I don't know if infiltrated is quite the word, but he definitely rode a motorcycle through one of the windows into the helicarrier. That's the most Logan thing I've ever heard of. I think I remember when we talked about that. Yeah, it was great. It was it was um, Wolverine number 50. And in, in X-Men itself, Rogue, during, during one of her um, Carol Danvers fugue states broke into the helicarrier in um, X-Men 182. Oh, was that the one where Rogue had that brief gimmick where she would throw coins really hard and because she was so strong they would be like deadly projectiles? I think she did that to the helicarrier at one point. The point is, I'm pretty sure that on Earth 616, there's just straight up an infiltrated the helicarrier scouting merit badge. Like, it's supposed to be really impressive, but everybody does it. Like, beating one of the gym leaders in Pokemon, where literally every Pokemon trainer has to do that to progress. I love that you don't play Pokemon, but, like, have an endless font of Pokemon references. I mean, okay, A, I play Pokemon Go, so there's a little overlap. But B, Anna plays, like, a whole bunch of Pokemon, uh, so I occasionally glance over while I'm working on podcast notes, and she's, I don't know, like, fighting the ghost leader or whatever. Mmm, Pokeosmosis. Mmm, exactly. Uh, Jay, have you ever infiltrated the Helicarrier? I thought you were going to ask if I ever played Pokemon. I mean, I don't think you have. I, I haven't. I, I, I am, I have actually infiltrated the Helicarrier, though. I'm actually, um, that's where my recording studio is. I just sneak in every week. Oh, well, you sound pretty good. So my compliments to whoever set up their studio. You know, I, I just brought a lot of towels and pillows with me. It helps. Legit, legit. Anyway, all of that aside, this infiltration of the helicarrier occurs in part because Boom Boom throws a whole bunch of time bombs into one of the helicarrier's intake vents. You know, I gotta say, I was promised extreme teens in X-Force, and by God, these are extreme teens. They are, they are indeed highly extreme, even though none of them is on a surfboard or skateboard. Give them time. But also... Adam Polina. Like, I know I was kind of iffy about Adam Polina at first, but Polina does such a good job of just making this just a delightful action cartoon in all the best ways. His layouts are fun and inventive, panel framings, his characters are super emotive, their costumes are really interestingly designed and, you know, continually drawn. He's a really good dynamic artist. I would like to see him tackle a wider variety of noses. Noses. Yeah. He pretty much draws one at this point. I I guess I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the noses in this comic. Um, it was one of the areas where the coloring sort of stuck out at me the most, so I, I just kept on noticing them. Nose-tissing them? Something like that. Uh, anyway, there are hull breaches everywhere, because of course Boom Boom is just, you know, throwing her time bombs into a governmentally funded pachinko machine, essentially. And Dum Dum Dugan, currently running the Helicarrier, is not pleased. Jay, do you remember Dum Dum Dugan? 
Of course I do. He has a mustache and a bowler hat, and he's usually an LMD. He's great! He's What I really like about uh, Dum Dum Dugan, okay, there are a lot of things I like about Dum Dum Dugan, but one of the things I like about him in this comic specifically is that he is often, like, sputtering and furious because of all the things X-Force is doing, and there's something about the type of mustache that he has and the type of facial exaggeration that Adam Polina draws that just makes his rage so endlessly entertaining and hilarious, and I love it. He is outranked, though, and that is by acting head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Contessa Valentina de la Fontaine. Was she the character who we saw turn up at the end of the Falcon Winter Soldier? Uh, yeah, in Black Widow as well. Looks like she's going to be a big part of the future MCU. Uh, somewhat different character here, a little less Dreyfus-y, but um, she's still fun. She, I, I always think of her as the Baroness, which I recognize is actually a G.I. Joe character. I mean, there is a fair bit of overlap. Like, G.I. Joe was a Marvel comic for a while. Larry Hama wrote it. Larry Hama also wrote the issue of Wolverine, where he drives a motorcycle through the helicarrier. So, you know, it's way fewer than six degrees of separation. I think it's just that all aristocrats look the same to me. Is that racist? No. Oh, well, that's good. Uh, anyway... The real person in charge here, as the Contessa points out, is actually G.W. Bridge. Remember him? I do. Wasn't he pals with Cable back in the day? He was. They were on the Six Pack and or Wild Pack together, and these days he works for S.H.I.E.L.D. and perpetually tries to take X-Force down and perpetually fails. But he's in charge of mutant stuff, and since mutants are clearly attacking the Helicarrier, based on the prisoner the mutants are trying to break out, we'll get to that, uh, it's Bridge's Bridge. Because, you know, like, the helicarrier has a bridge. Now, you mentioned mutants are t- trying to break in, and you've covered Meltdown and Shatterstar. Who else is, is, is out and about? So, Meltdown and Shatty Buns are our Alpha Team. Beta Team is Domino and Siren. Delta Team is Sunspot, and his ego, I guess. And Omega Team is Cable and Caliban. Now, neither Cable nor Caliban is doing super well these days. Yeah, Caliban's still pretty on edge after almost being killed by Absalom in the recent Externals arc. And Cable's techno-organic viral infection is flaring pretty badly after an X-Man crossover that he just got done with. He had to tap into his power too hardcore to, like, you know, make Nate Gray stop being such a jerk teenager, and so now it's messing with him. You can tell that's happening visually because you start to see the tech creeping further across his chest and up onto his neck from um, his techno-organic arm. I always like that as a visual for Cable. The idea that, yeah, he's always going to have robot parts, but they're very well contained. They're very clear lines, like he just sort of has an arm grafted onto his human body. And so when that border starts getting crept over by little bits of tech, it really gets across just him gradually losing control. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really effective visual cue. This is also a really effective heist issue. Everybody gets to use their individual powers and skills, which also means if this is your first issue of X-Force, it's easy to tell wh- whose deal is is what. And we really see like why having such a varied superhero team like this, where everyone has such different powers, works so well. Uh, my favorite part is probably when Siren sends out a sound pulse to make uh, security lasers in a corridor visible, and then Domino does that thing that everybody does in action movies, where she flips and jumps through all the lasers and, like, shoots the little emitters and they all blow up, and then she lands in a cool superhero pose. I've begun to think of that move as the Parker. Oh, from, uh, whatchamacallit? From... 
Leverage. That's the word. I've only seen one episode. I really liked it, though. Have you seen the new Leverage? Yes. Is it good? Yes. Excellent. Yes. So this scene reminds me a lot of something I used to do a lot as a kid around the age I was when this comic came out. High-tech heists? Almost. Laser tag. We had a laser tag arena at a place called Pirate's Cove in our hometown, and I would go there with a few of my friends as often as I possibly could, and they had, like, stage smokes, you could see all the lasers, and they'd play badass music, and the first time I was there, they played a techno remix of the Mission Impossible theme as I was stalking around shooting people in the targets with my laser gun, and I had never felt cooler in my young life. Good work. Thanks. Later, they replaced their cool tower setup with a bunch of, like hollowed out car bodies it was not great oh well that's not fun i took I, I took a summer camp class of elementary school age kids there once for a friday fun thing and was underwhelmed mm, i can never have what we had back in the glorious glorious 90s the 90s weren't really that glorious i mean i mostly played a lot of skee-ball skee-ball's pretty glorious skee-ball is amazing man So what I like as well about this heist is not only do we get to see everybody's powers being used in cool ways, we also have room for good character work, which is something New Mutants always excelled at, and I always love it when I see that in X-Force, when we get to see individual dynamics between various characters. So at one point, Tabitha, Meltdown, thanks Shatterstar for not condemning her a couple issues ago when the rest of the team was piling on about how it wasn't healthy for her to keep seeing the imprisoned Sabretooth. She also takes the opportunity to briefly look Sabretooth up when they've got momentary access to the S.H.I.E.L.D. computers, finds out that he is alive, although not his location. Right. She doesn't know that he's in an entirely different team that starts with X. And as this is going on, as Meltdown's talking to Shaddy Buns, he's worrying about losing his killer instinct, which he's been worrying a lot about lately. Like, this is how you do things. You have a bunch of action scenes in X-Force, because, of course, it's freaking X-Force— But you can also have dialogue, or thought bubbles, or whatever to continue that constant character work. If you just have one, it's boring as hell. I love the feeling we get here that this kind of stuff is so much business as usual for X-Force that they can just have water cooler conversations while they do it. Exactly! Their water cooler is... Violence! Perfect! Well, anyway, all of this violence is just a distraction for the aforementioned Omega team of Cable and Caliban, because X-Force is here for a rescue, and the quarry of that rescue is behind a gigantic goddamn titanium-slash-vibranium door. It is huge. Everything in the helicarrier is huge. And in fact, the entire team has to use all of their powers, I guess except for Sunspot, who's still out, out on the deck, but everyone else has to use all of their powers and work together to get the doors open. But I like how it doesn't actually work when they zap it in very coordinated ways, and so they all just end up pulling it open. I thought that the zapping it in coordinated ways got them enough of a crack to, you know, get a grip on it and pull it open. No, I think it's just one of those things where, like, if someone's trying to open a jar and they can't, and then you open it, you tell them that they loosened it so they don't feel as bad. That's often true. Well, maybe it's true here, then. Maybe you're right. Anyway, no surprise, the prisoner inside here is, in fact, Cyclops from the aforementioned Uncanny X-Men 333. I guess sometime between when that issue ended and this one started, he and Senator Kelly were picked up, and he was accused of being himself the one that was trying to assassinate Senator Kelly, as opposed to it really being Graydon Creed. Which, you know, I mean, that makes sense. Graydon Creed is certainly very good at manipulation and lying. 
However, upon capturing him, they decided that the ideal solution to this situation was to strip him down to boxer briefs, um, hang him from the ceiling in a weirdo Weapon X style headset that's supposed to be there to contain his powers, which are actually much easier than that to contain, and I don't really understand why he can't be wearing clothing. I mean, you know, he might be hiding Shi'ar technology in his clothing. Maybe they've dealt with Carl the Executioner. Still, it's it's a weird... It's a weird scenario, but it's also a weird direct continuation of the X-Men story because it feels like we missed, like, four chapters. It does, yeah. But at the same time, to give this issue some credit, the Inmedius Res opening with X-Force's rescue attempt already underway is really fun, so I'm inclined to give them a break on that one. Oh, that's fantastic. I just would have liked some more context later. Yeah, yeah, fair. Well, maybe we'll get more later. I don't know. I'm not very familiar with this era. But regardless, of course, they were expected. GW Bridge and, like, frickin' a thousand soldiers show up. And GW, sorry, and GW Bridge tells Cable, I've waited a long time for this, Cable, but I finally caught you with your hand in the cookie jar. My cookie jar. There is some weird sexual subtext happening here, and I, for one, find it very unprofessional. Maybe this is why GW Bridge keeps getting demoted. Anyway, Cable uses his telekinesis to free Cyclops' eyes and guide the blast to ricochet around and knock out literally every soldier except for GW, whom Cable personally punches out. Okay, this is ridiculously unrealistic, but it's so much fun. This is what I mean about X-Force just being this very violent cartoon. Miles, you're criticizing a scene where a man uses his telekinesis to direct the concussive energy blasts that come out of another man's eyes as unrealistic it's all relative come on i just feel like there's a point where you gotta kind of throw up your hands and run with it that's legit okay fine how's this this is goofy but it works yes yes that works for me so everybody heads out to the cloaked blackbird hovering outside and inside jean gray's the pilot and her and cyclops kiss and it's all romantic and adam polina actually draws great kisses it turns out and yay everything's great Yay! That brings us to X-Force number 56, Crazy For You, written by Jeff Loeb again, penciled by Adam Polina again, inked by Mark Morales again, but this time also Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins again, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, as almost every comic in the 90s seems to be. And guest starring Spider-Man. Oh yeah, that Spider-Man looking guy. Okay, so... You know, we talked about how in the last issue, our sort of opening was seeing all the team in action doing a helicarrier heist. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like the Danger Room cold open that we've talked about with the X-Men, where you get to learn what their powers are by seeing them in the Danger Room. You know what? Fuck every Danger Room cold open forever, because we have a church fight cold open! I'm really into this. This this definitely um, appeals to, to my, my inner iconoclast. It's great! Like, they found this gigantic, beautiful, abandoned church, like, kind of near New York, and they're training in it, and of course, it's X-Force, so at one point, Shatterstar just fucking jumps through this beautiful, gigantic stained glass window, shattering it, with his sword arms crossed in front of him, looking all badass, uh, which interrupts Siren, who's smiling all easygoing as she leisurely flies upside down, Adam Polina, here in this destroyed church, we shall praise thy blessed pencils. These kids are so awful. They are, but it looks so cool. 
What's also cool is this narration. She has lost Warpath. He has lost Richter. Both see these missing teammates as friends. Both are too stubborn to admit they may mean more than that. Is this issue right here the first time that it's been pretty much explicit that Richter and Shatterstar are romantically involved? It's definitely the closest it's come. Um, de depressingly, apparently a lot of straight people still didn't pick up on it. It's so clear right here. And, like, the groundwork is done. I mean, credit oh, yeah, some... absolutely. Yeah, really all the writers who had written Richter and Shatterstar before. Like, it's, it's a gradual, believable build. Yeah, no, unquestionably. It's, it's just... I'm just remembering the level of shock from some quarters when they kissed on panel. Oh, man. I mean, Guido was shocked, but Guido's pretty oblivious. He's also fictional, so, you know, we can probably forgive him for not having completely followed the arc. Yeah, there's that. So, Scott Lobdell and Jeff Loeb may be dicks in some pretty important ways, but I gotta say, credit to them for this specific thing, for Lobdell handling Iceman's subtext as well as he possibly could, I think, in the 90s, and Loeb doing that with Shatterstar and Richter. Props. So, as they continue to fuck up this probably very expensive and very meaningful to many people abandoned church... Why'd they abandon it if it's so meaningful? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe they were in the helicarrier and they got blown up by some of Tabitha's time bombs and so they could never come back. So it's a shield church? I think it's a shield church, yeah. What do shield agents worship? I don't know. Pouches? Anyway, as the two characters fight, Siren looks over and sees Shatterstar's sword, and in it sees a sort of illusion reflection of Spider-Man. Fine, no, it's actually Deadpool. Okay, fine. Anyway, then she remembers everything that went down at the Weissman Institute for the Criminally Insane back in X-Force number 47. Remember that? Yeah, so Siren went undercover as a patient to investigate why some of the patients Xavier had sent to the Institute had disappeared. And Deadpool came in to rescue her after she herself had gotten stuck there. It turned out a young boy named Jeremy Stevens was mind-controlling everybody as far as we knew, and he sent Teresa back out thinking that everything was fine there, keeping Deadpool inside. It occurs to me, though, so here is Siren having this, like, panicked flash to something important she forgot. Do you think that's just what happened with this comic? Jeff Loeb looked in his sword and he was like, oh shit, that dangling plot thread from X-Force 47, I should do something about that. I don't know, man. Like, I could see I could see waking in a cold sweat and being like, oh god, I forgot to resolve that. Yeah, yeah. Well, to the Institute, Shatterstar and Siren go in stolen medical outfits in a stolen ambulance. Well, an ek ma because it's got the, the letters backward on the front, which always seems so smart to me. It's very clever. Well, anyway, uh, Siren doesn't want to contact Professor X at home or Cable presumably also at home, maybe in a giant bathtub at the X-Mansion, because she's wondering if it was one of those two telepaths who messed with her mind. She has no idea why she only just remembered what happened there. It wasn't, but honestly, odds are on the side of that supposition. Yeah, especially for Xavier. Shatterstar, for his part, is freaked out because this place is familiar, and he has no idea when he would have been here. Now, he's been questioning a lot about his life, because X-Force was collectively arrested a while ago, and the cops insisted that he was a missing guy named Benjamin Russell. 
Right. And he also has been losing his killer instinct, his fighting edge. I mean, he's said that. We haven't actually seen it. He's still pretty badass. Uh, so he's kind of wondering, what is his real past? And unfortunately, as he's in the midst of looking himself up, he is captured by the doctor, by Jeremy, the, the creepy, uncanny child, and Deadpool. Ruh-roh. Well, as for Siren, she ventures into the Institute, and she sees Deadpool also. He keeps disappearing and reappearing behind different cell doors, spouting various pop culture catchphrases, but like... And this somehow seems off to her, which is weird, because that's kind of his thing. It's true, it's true. Uh, after that, there are dozens of non-burned-faced clones of Deadpool singing his origin story, The Weapon X, to the tune of The Brady Bunch, which... Okay, that, that's actually really funny and overwhelming and terrifying as she's running away from just a bunch of maniacally grinning, attractive blonde men wearing red ninja outfits. Now, she finally finds the actual Deadpool in a padded room begging her to make it stop and is immediately confronted by the villainous duo of, of Wiseman and, Jerem and Jeremy. And Siren realizes that it's not Uncanny Child Jeremy controlling things. It's actually Dr. Wiseman, or rather, it's Games Master who has possessed Dr. Wiseman. Fucking Games Master. He was the Omnipath, which is to say telepath, but, like, more, who was behind the upstarts and their game, and now he's been controlling a mental institution for reasons? Siren thinks that maybe Games Master wanted her to end his game, so he lured her back there, and that's why she remembered again, but it doesn't fully make sense. I mean, I guess Games Master has often not made a terrible amount of sense, but, like, even less here. And distressing as we find this, Shatterstar finds it all the more so because Games Master has apparently informed him that he is, in fact, just a regular dude named Benjamin Russell, and the whole Shatterstar life was an illusion Games Master created. Which reminds me of that Farside cartoon you used to have above your desk for years and years and years and years. Oh yeah, they're the two uh, lab coat wearing people that come into the big military dictator's office and one of them just says, I have this right here, Sorry, your highness, but you're really not the dictator of Ithuvania, a small European republic. In fact, there is no Ithuvania. The hordes of admirers, the military parades, this office. We faked it all as an experiment in human psychology. In fact, your highness, your real name is Edward Belcher, you're from Long Island, New York, and it's time to go home, Eddie. So basically, same scenario. Pretty much, yeah. So, we'll follow this whole Benjamin Russell story. That's coming up to be a big deal in X-Force shortly, but I don't know. If I were Shatterstar, I would be very skeptical. Like, Shatterstar definitely teleported into the danger room toward the end of New Mutants in his first appearance, and, like, the team definitely was in the future dealing with a futuristic despot version of him in the Mojoverse, and he definitely has, like, ridiculous agility and swords and zappy powers. Quite a guy, that Ben Russell. Apparently. Like, honestly, the only thing I would believe is that, no, his name is just different. Like, no, your name is not Gavidra 7. Seriously, whose name is Gavidra 7? Your name is Benjamin Russell. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong, Gavidra 7's a cooler name, so I'd be disappointed too, but, like, not that disappointed. It's time to go home, Benny. <laughs> Meanwhile, Warpath, missing since the team's confrontation with the externals, is in South Beach, Florida. 
I went there once with my mom in high school for a weekend, and everyone thought we were a couple, and it was really weird. Ah, that would be really weird. Yeah, it was unsettling. Fair. But also kind of hilarious. Eh, it can be both. Anyway, Warpath is there uh, as part of, in fact, a couple. He's there with Risk. Risk-Q. Risk-K. Risk? Anyway, remember her? Her name is spelled Risque, so I assumed it was pronounced Risque, but she keeps on using it in contexts where it would only make sense if it were pronounced Risk, so I'm not certain. Hard to say, yeah. Anyway, she and Warpath met a few issues ago. They had sort of a meet-cute, explode-cute. He threw a car at her, she imploded it. You know how it goes. Yeah, that's pretty much how romance starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, he apparently was rescued by her from Celine of the Externals, and now they're hooking up in South Beach, and he hasn't gotten in touch with X-Force, because he really likes just feeling free, simple, easy, like he's not in the shadow of his brother, like there are no expectations. In fact, he's feeling so free and easy that he got a giant goddamn Thunderbird tattoo on his giant goddamn back. Seriously, it's huge. It must have taken forever. Like, I just got a small one recently, and it took an hour and a half just for this tiny little tattoo. I mean, there's not a lot of detail in it. I guess that's true. But still, there's another question I have. So Warpath, one of his powers is that he's super durable, right? So how do you tattoo someone like that? Wouldn't that make it take much longer? Maybe it's not a tattoo. Maybe she just drew it on him with Sharpies once when they got bored. Oh, that could be. So, like, every time he lays down on the white sheets, there's just this sort of messy, colorful blob that he leaves behind. It's not colorful. It's all gray and black. Oh, okay. Well, that's less fun, then. Damn it, Risk. I knew I didn't trust you. Risque. Risk Q. Anyway, they drive around way too fast on a Harley, and once again, Polina just freaking kills it, just drawing this super fun, dynamic, over-the-top action thing. And of course, cops start chasing them. And when Warpath asks if they should pull over, she responds, James, what's life without a little risk? Or possibly risk you? Or possibly risque? Yeah, I mean, that was the moment where I, I sort of had to completely rethink how her name was pronounced. I, I really object if it's pronounced risk and she's spelling it like risque, though. I'm not saying it's a great plan. What is great, though, is that as they, like, jump over a big gap on their Harley, it's unclear which says which, because the speech bubbles are pointed sort of generically, but one of them says, Yippee-yay-yo-ki-yay! And the other says, Risk! And I super hope it's actually Risk who is saying Risk, like, saying her own name like she's some kind of goddamn Pokemon. Maybe she is. Maybe she is. We don't know much about her yet. Anyway, they're distracted by the sounds of violence nearby because uh, some Friends of Humanity bikers are beating up a guy. It turns out that he's, he's just a guy who has severe burn scars, and he blames mutants for making people think he's a mutant. So I was thinking about this, and it seems like this might just be commentary about how, you know, various types of bigotry harm even more people than the direct targets of that bigotry because they can be used to enforce norms against anyone who deviates, but I don't know. Are we giving the issue too much credit? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's going there in a broad sense. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, at that point, Risk says, you know what, screw this, this is why mutants should just hang out with each other. So the implication is that Risk is a bad influence on our Jimmy Proudstar. So we're going to skip over from X-Force to X-Men Unlimited number 8 to a story called First Contact. 
written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Dan Lawless and Tom Grummet, inked by Ian Aiken, colored by Matt Webb, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And the attentive listeners among you may realize that we're actually way further along in X-Men Unlimited in our coverage. Yeah, we, um, we forgot this one. Whoops, so we're covering it now. And I am excited about this story for all the wrong reasons. Look, it's an okay story, it's not spectacular, it's kind of cookie-cutter, it reads a little bit like sort of fun fanfiction with an original character stuck in, but, 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 gives me an excuse to talk about X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh yeah? The greatest, not best, but greatest X-Men movie. Okay. The raddest, the most extreme I mean, we were talking about Wolverine jumping through the air on motorcycles earlier, and he definitely does that, like, a lot in that movie. One time he jumps through a helicopter, and the helicopter explodes. As he should. It's, it's, oh god, it's such a bad movie, I love it so much. But, among the characters who feature in it is a guy named Chris Bradley, who is electrokinetic. And this issue of X-Men Unlimited is the origin of comics Chris Bradley. Wait, wasn't he played by uh, Maria Doc Brandybuck in that movie? Yes, yes, otherwise known as Dominic Monaghan, otherwise known as German DJ Hans Jensen. Right! Oh man, that was fun. And by that, I mean really all of the things we just referenced. Yeah, I'm going to link to the Hans Jensen sketch in the visual companion to this episode because it is the greatest thing ever to come out of any work by Tolkien. Um, it's it's just an Easter egg from the, the Lord of the Rings DVDs. And, or the Return of the King specifically, I think. And and it's it's really beautiful. It's a work of art. It truly is. Speaking of uh, art, I guess, before we get too much further into this issue, I do want to call out the genuinely beautiful Adam Polina cover, which features our main character, Chris, um, who's just sort of like a generic-looking white kid, but uh, looking all dramatic with his arms crossed in front of him and lightning crackling out of him on this striking black background. It's just a really cool piece of art, even if every time I glance at it, I think it's supposed to be Legion. It's also got a weird little retcon. In fact, the whole story is a weird little retcon, and we all know how much I love those. Mm -hmm. So what about this story? What's this issue about? Okay, ordinary teen Chris Bradley has ordinary teen problems, like asking out the most popular girl in school, the sudden onset of severe headaches, and the fact that Gambit and Jean Grey appear to be stalking him. Okay, so I get it, like... He's a mutant who's about to manifest his powers, fine. The X-Men are keeping an eye on him, fine. But come on, Jean Grey is a telepath. She could be much more subtle. Gambit, I mean, hell, he can be stealthy in metal boots. He technically can be subtle, he just never wants to. It's not obvious from all of these characteristics. Chris is a mutant about to manifest. Specifically, he shoots lightning out of his whole body. Uh, He manages to break a lot of his school and flees, only to find his best friend, who freaks the hell out. Now, his friend's panic is portrayed as anti-mutant, but he's he really just shrieks and runs away when his best buddy shows up screaming and wreathed in lightning, which I think is actually a very reasonable response to that situation. I don't know. The way it's portrayed in the comic, I mean... Chris and his friend Jeff, I think, they're super tight, they're very close, they trust each other, and Chris is coming clearly seeking help from his best friend. Like, But he's also shooting lightning in all directions! But you get the strong impression, I don't know, maybe it's just the art that conveys this, that that's not the freaky part to Jeff. I, I, I mean, it's, it's confirmed later on that that wasn't the freaky part to Jeff, 
but I I kind of took it as red in the early part. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to be defending this issue a lot because I read this when it came out, you know, back in the 90s. I was maybe a little bit younger than Chris, the main character, is. But of course, when you're a kid, you always identify with characters who are slightly older than yourself because they seem cool. And Chris is clearly supposed to be a representative of the, quote, target demographic of superhero comics in the early to mid-90s. He's white, straight, cis, middle class, and I was all of those things as well, at least as far as I knew, and so I really identified with Chris, and this is an issue where he feels like an outsider, he gets taken in by the X-Men, he gets to be their buds, and it was just the coolest goddamn thing to think about, because... I wanted to be this kid. I wanted to find that I had a place where I would be loved and respected for the things that made me a little weird and get to hang out with rad superheroes who would all be my friends. I, on the other hand, read this issue for the first time at 38, which is to say about 30 years too late to be filled with that childlike sense of wonder. Okay, well, if you can ever go back in time and change one thing about history, this is probably not what you should change. But, you know, you could. It's an option. Or would be if I could. Well, yes. Uh, anyway, yeah, so um, the lightning stuff blows up, and Gene and Gambit take him back to his parents and, and tell them what's up. But my favorite part is the totally presumably unintentional wordplay as Chris is crackling with lightning and Gene tells his parents. This may come as a shock for all of you. <laughs> I like to think she's just trolling. Oh, she definitely meant that. <laughs> well, anyway. Anyway. Chris uh, goes to the Xavier School, and it's super cool, and he trains with all the cool guys, and the X-Men and Iceman is his best friend despite being 10 years his senior or whatever, and the X-Men all think he's great, and he starts to get control of his powers, and it's just the awesomest. And the thing is, it is, because the story gives this time to breathe, and the X-Men all are in character. They act like themselves, and honestly, uh... I would buy, I would totally buy that Iceman would take this, the youngest member of the school under his wing, because, like, let's be real, there are no young students here. They're all off in Generation X. I have no idea why Chris Bradley is not there instead, but, like, I don't know. It works for me. It, 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 feels, it feels like it can easily take place within X-Men continuity. Alas, just as Chris finally gets control of his powers and and is homecoming king of Xavier School Homecoming, which doesn't exist, I just made that up, um, it turns out that he has the legacy virus. Yeah, and this part is, is really poignant. I think the issue really does sell his just frustration and rage and despair. You all told me it was going to be all right. All I had to do was learn to control my powers and it would be all right. Well, you were wrong. Ouch. And Iceman goes after Chris, because, you know, they kind of have a bond, and just sits with him. And Chris asks Bobby, what happens after you die? And Bobby says he wishes he could tell him. Even potatoes? Even horses. It's rough, though. I mean, I don't know. Like, the story, it, it, it has a happier ending, but, like... Again, I wonder how much of the metaphor is intended here and how much this is just, like, a kid's power fantasy. Like, it really, really feels like the latter. Like, this feels like the story that you'd make up about how you got to join the X-Men and it was all super poignant, but then, or you're, and then there was this, this super poignant, horrible thing, but then there was still sort of an upbeat ending because he goes home, he thinks to die, but it turns out that the hot girl is still into him, so that's pretty cool. And then, um... 
it turns out that he survives the legacy virus getting cured, and he's going to go on to join the new warriors as Bolt and eventually become the second dude named Chris to become Maverick before finally dying in an explosion. True. And honestly, I think part of why I like this issue is that um, I didn't know any of that until I was doing the research for this episode. I just thought it was a nice little sweet one shot that was poignant and bittersweet. But I don't know, like, okay, if it was a metaphor, and I'm not saying it is, I'm not saying this was intended, I could see this being about a gay kid in the 80s or the 90s, feeling ostracized, rejected, and then finding out there's this whole gay community becoming part of it, and then AIDS hitting. And again, I don't know if that's intentional at all. Maybe it's not. But if you think about it that way, it's poignant. Especially the part where he goes home and gets the girl. Okay, so that part makes works less well for the metaphor. Fair point, fair point. So yeah, that is that is the secret origin of Chris Bradley, a.k.a. Bolt, a.k.a. Maverick, a.k.a. Mariadoc Brandybuck. And there you go. And now we're actually caught up on X-Men Unlimited. Whoops. Which brings us to your questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, are the regular civilians of Earth-616 aware of the various alien races that occasionally wander over to Seoul, like the Kree, Skrulls, Shi'ar, Brood, Spineless Ones, Technarchy, and so forth? Similarly, are they aware of Atlantis? I mean, sometimes, when it suits the story, basically. They're aware at least of the ones that have made a big enough splash, pun intended, that was all about Atlantis, um, to end up in the papers, and for a good window on... All of that, and specifically on sort of the relationship of the media to the super end of the Marvel Universe, I highly, highly recommend the Marvel series by Kurt Busiek. I mean, honestly, like, I think we'd recommend it regardless of the situation, because it's just straight up excellent. But it's particularly apropos of this particular question. Yes. Also, the comic that Jay wrote about Cyclops is sort of kind of a spinoff of it, so that that's good too. But yeah, it's uh, outside of Marvel's, which is very consistent internally— it's inconsistent in a very, like, Doctor Who or Resident Evil way, where all this, like, globe-shattering, mad science, terrible stuff happens, and most people don't really think about it. They're still surprised the next time it happens. But yeah, you really don't see New Yorkers who have any idea what's going on, like, the third time Fin Fang Foom attacks. It makes more sense for some of those. Like, you know, you mentioned the Phalanx listener. Uh, their attacks were pretty isolated in the Phalanx Covenant. Uh, Limbo's demons during Inferno. I mean, everybody's memories were erased after Inferno of what happened. But uh, yeah, after all the shit that Namor and Atuma have pulled over the years, I hope they uh, understand what's up with Atlantis. Atlantis is in the UN, so I'm pretty sure they do. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, it's just like a regular country full of fish people with a lot of octopuses that can be summoned by conks. Yes. Uh, there was that time that there was a big inanimate celestial in San Francisco. It was a tourist attraction, so people definitely knew about that. Yes, the dreaming celestial. Yeah. Oh, and uh, in Thor, the Asgardians are, like, genuinely well-known in Broxton, Oklahoma, because Asgard was hovering a few feet above the ground there for kind of a long time. That led to a moment of kind of awesome real-world awareness crossover, too, because for a while the Thor books became, like hugely, hugely popular in Oklahoma, because Asgard was in Oklahoma for a while. I mean, hell yeah, I'd be very excited. Hell, I was excited for Oklahoma. 
But uh, yeah, I would imagine that for the common person, they would also have a hard time realizing who was an alien and who was just like your random supervillain with an army of robots. I think what would be more relevant is uh, running the hell away and preparing to rent like your 10th apartment of the month, thanks to all the disasters. Philo tagged us on Twitter to ask the name of the Morlock who briefly adopted the power pack. And that was Annalee. That actually reminded me of something we were talking about in a recent episode. We were talking about mutants having human names versus mutant names. And actually, uh, one of our listeners, Icon UK, uh, suggested that Annalee was another example of a Morlock with a human name, along with Sally Blevins. Good call. I guess that makes sense. I mean, Annalee lived a pretty long human life before Grey Crow, formerly Scalp Hunter, killed her kids, and she got kind of stuck in that moment before she herself was then killed by also the Marauders. Man, mm. Annalee's life sucked. Yeah, Annalie is a really, really tragic character. I wonder if we're going to see her again in the Krakoan era. That's a really good question. Yeah. Well, anyway, that was a factual, uh, simple question that got sad. That happens sometimes, you know, in X-Men. Even horses. Even potatoes. We're a fully listener-supported potato cast, I mean podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts... This episode, we have, yet again, the angry Claremontian narrator. Congratulations, Liam Cuthbert. You are absolutely, definitely, probably, actually, for real, the first person to successfully break into a shield helicarrier, just like Aaron before you. I hope you're very proud of yourself. Here's your merit badge. Let me just peel it off the stack. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week it's Hawk Talk, but in two weeks... Onslaught. Star Trek. What?! Oh, that would make Drag Race so much better if the queens just had to lip sync to, like, random noises. noises. Yes. Like, it's like a fucking trucks. washing machine or something. And the trombone. Yeah. Class of second graders. Yeah. <laughs>